Good morning. Good morning. Man, it's a pretty season, isn't it? Normally not one that enjoys the snow, but there are aspects of it that I do enjoy, especially if I don't have to drive in it. This morning we continue to pick up in the Gospel of Mark. We continue to march our way through, and we're getting close to the halfway point. So it's moving along pretty well, especially for me. But we have a couple sections to get through before we get to Christmas Eve. And if y'all will allow, I'm going to keep preaching through the Gospel of Mark on Christmas Eve in the morning. We should, by God's grace, get to the Transfiguration. And I think it's very profound that that would be on Christmas Eve. So I think I'm going to stick with the message of the Gospel. But Christmas Eve evening, I'll preach a little differently. If everybody's okay with that, that's the direction we'll go. This morning, we are looking in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 26. It's kind of a big section, and yet it's very similar throughout the whole thing. So bear with me as we go through this. But we're going to be looking at rules, money, lust, and bread. It's kind of a my wife kind of looked at me and like, that was a really long title. I'm like, it's four words. It's pretty simple. So we'll get through it. But rules, money, lust, and bread. Mark here, we pull back out of the ministry to the Gentiles. We pull out of the wanderings of Christ and his disciples among the Gentile nations. And we come back into the land of Galilee. And this is the end of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. He does come back one time later on, but, of course, unawares and shrouded in secrecy. But this is the last time that we see Jesus openly in Galilee. But it's a time that continues to display for us the darkness of the nation of Israel. But it also unveils to us the darkness of our time. Displays of darkness are vast in the gospel. We see it all over. And displays of darkness are vast in our country. We see it all over. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And yet there is new wisdom that we can continue to see in light of the Gospels. Not changing the Gospel, but in seeing the lens of the world through the Gospel. We had a discussion yesterday about how the depravity of man is such that it used to be, if you heard a swear word on TV, it was probably on a pay-per-view or HBO. Now the news anchors all swear. Now all the sportscasters swear. And everybody has no problem with profanity, even the President of the United States. And yet this isn't shocking to anybody outside of those who are appalled at the depravity of man. But it just continues to show the direction our nation is headed. And it's because of what we're going to read this morning. There is a level of blindness. There's two levels. There's permanent blindness and complete darkness. And then there's the temporary blindness. That eventually leads to the light. We're going to look at both of those today. I'm going to start with a couple of verses. First, I'm going to read John 12, verse 46. John 12, 46 says this, I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. There is a vast difference between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And we need to make no mistake, there are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of the earth, which is darkness, and the kingdom of heaven, which is light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is that point. He is that point in the darkness that illuminates even the darkness. Colossians chapter 1 tells us it is a work of God that draws us out of the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, that kingdom of light. It is a work of God, because man, since the fall, has walked in perpetual darkness. He loves the darkness. Why? Because as the Apostle John says, the light exposes their evil deeds. Man desires to live 
autonomously of God. Man desires to live in the cocoon of darkness because it's comfortable. God's holiness and the light of his presence is uncomfortable for a sinner. It's uncomfortable even for the redeemed. We see that throughout Scripture. Look at Isaiah's response to the Lord. Look at Ezekiel. Look at Daniel. Look at the Apostle John when he sees the incarnate Christ. Look at Peter and James and John as they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were so dumbfounded by the scene they didn't have anything intelligent to say. But it is the glorious work of Christ that illumines the most darkened and depraved heart to bring it into the light of His beloved Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Again, Paul's pointing back to creation. He's pointing back and using creation as our basis, right? For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We find light in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the only place that we will find the light for life, is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul continued to point back, it was God who spoke light into existence. It is God who continues to speak light into the existence of man's heart. We see a lot of permanent darkness in our day and age, do we not? We see a lot of darkness in the church. We see a lot of darkness in the daily routines that we walk in. Are we seeking light and to live in the light of the gospel? Or are we continuing to shroud the light of the gospel, like Jesus said, with a lampshade? Or do we pursue the light? In Luke chapter 19, Jesus spoke of this in mourning and weeping over the nation of Israel. And he says this, And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it. For he said, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have become hidden from your eyes. Jesus spoke to the apostate nation of Israel that he was going to what? Allow that blindness to stay in place. He was going to allow them to stay in the foolishness and the depravity of their darkness because of their continued rejection of the person and work of Christ. Because they refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus refused to acknowledge them as His own. And He allowed them to stay in that permanent darkness by His judgment. But there's also temporary darkness. There's the darkness of those who walk in the foolishness and the depravity of sin, because that is our nature. But then the light of the gospel illuminates and shows the depravity of our hearts, and God's Spirit moves us to repentance. And then we begin to walk in the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. That is a temporary darkness. Everybody is born in darkness. Everybody is born in a sin. But through the power of the gospel of Christ, we can actually walk in the power and the glory of the light of Christ and of his gospel and of the truth. We do not need to fear the darkness because the scripture says even the darkness is light to the Lord. God can illuminate the most dark place. And he can also illuminate our hearts and our minds through the gospel and through the truth of his word so we can see darkness for what it is. So we can have a worldview that is scripture-based and not man-based. So that we can look at others shrouded in darkness and see their need and preach the gospel. Because the gospel is the light of God. It is the glory of Christ. And it's also man's greatest need. But as we get into our text, that is what we're sitting on. That's our foundation, is the darkness and the depravity of man's heart. If you're not there, go ahead and turn to John, uh, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 11. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
Sighing deeply in his spirit, he says, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away on the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? For when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke for the seven, for the four thousand, how many large basketful of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. And he was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought to him a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and he began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come here this morning to exalt your name, to worship you through songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and also through the reading and the exposition of your word. Father, we come to this time of year that we look at the simplicity of the manger and yet the profundity of it. The glory of the fact that you stepped into time. You humbled yourself to become a man. And you came and lived a perfect life to act as our propitiation, to be the substitute because we in ourselves could never satisfy the requirement of your holiness. And yet in Christ Jesus our Lord, your wrath was satisfied and therefore your wrath is turned away from those who walk in the light of the glory of Christ. And Father, it is because of that that we can worship this morning. We just pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth because your word tells us that those are the worshipers whom you seek. We pray that we would come here for your glory. We pray that we would worship you in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. We pray that the preaching of your word would honor you and that we would continue to be changed into the image of your beloved son. Lord, we just ask your blessing and your leading on this time. In Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to look at three points this morning. And the first one is permanent darkness. And we find that in verse 11 and 12. And it says, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And it's interesting because the Word of God tells us, do not put the Lord thy God to the test. And this is where the Pharisees start out, is let's put the Lord our God to the test. In Matthew's parallel gospel, in chapter 16, verse 1, it tells us that the Sadducees also came along with the Pharisees for this confrontation. And it's interesting because, again, we're looking at permanent darkness. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees hate each other. They have nothing in common. They despise one another with a deep hatred. Make no mistake about that. And we'll get into more of why. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees hate each other. And yet, when it comes to the light, the darkness will always gather and unite to oppose the truth of the light. It will always seek to come together to destroy that which is light. Darkness has not changed. Look around the world and see the glory of Christ in things and watch the darkness come together. 
Even people and people groups who despise and hate one another vehemently will come together to seek to silence and destroy the gospel. Will seek to silence and destroy the church. Will seek to destroy the nation of Israel. Darkness has always operated in that manner. It will not get along until the light comes. And when the light comes, it will unite together against to oppose itself to the light of the glory of Christ. It will always do this. Darkness has a deep hatred of the light. And yet it also brings to mind the fact of so once were we. We once were in opposition to the light. We lived in the darkness. We loved it. We were at enmity with God. Because God is light and God is perfect and we are not. And there's that opposition that's there, both spiritually and physically. We lived opposed to it until the glorious light of the gospel transformed our hearts and our minds. And then we have that position in Christ to renew our minds in the scriptures so that we will continue to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. But make no mistake, you will always be opposed vehemently by the darkness. Because darkness and light have nothing in common. They have no common ground to stand upon. And the one will always hate the other. And the light is always seeking to bring light to the darkness. Because the light has already overcome the darkness. It just needs to be recognized through the regenerated power of the Holy Spirit. But the Pharisees have come again to oppose Christ. He has now come out of a long season wandering with his disciples in Gentile regions, and he lands. And what's the first thing that happens? The last confrontation of the leadership with Christ in Galilee. And then we'll see it more vehemently when he gets to Jerusalem and Judea. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out. The Pharisees, what do they follow? Rules, legalism, moral piety. They themselves remove themselves from the common people so they don't get morally stained. They hate people. They hate the common people and they despise outsiders. This is who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees looked morally decadent on the outside. And yet inwardly, Jesus said, they were full of dead men's bones. They were full of all uncleanness. They led the nation of Israel astray. Jesus opposed them and said, you go and you make a proselyte and you make him twice the child of hell that he was before. Why? Because they continue to lead them in a works-based salvation. This is the tool of the darkness. How do you leave people in darkness? Tell them they can work for their end result. And they will labor, and they will die working for nothing. What about the Sadducees? The Sadducees, they had no regard for the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They despised the oral Torah. They gave a little bit of lip service to the written Torah, but that was about it. They paid lip service in order to continue in the things that they were doing. But yet they denied key doctrines of the faith. They denied the resurrection of the body. They denied the immortality of the soul. And they denied the existence of angels. This is where the Sadducees sat at. But they were the guardians of the temple. They were the ones that were oftentimes the priests in charge of the daily rituals. They were also in charge of making lots of money. How? Well, you remember when Jesus cleared out the money changers and those who were selling animal sacrifices? That's the Sadducees. They were in charge of that. They were making great, great gains and wealth through the what? Leading people astray. Oh, their animal's not good enough. You need to buy one of these. Oh, you got foreign money? Here, let's exchange it and let's give you our money. Do you see how this is just continuing to twist and prey upon people? And this is the heart of the people that opposed the beauty of the truth of God and the person of Christ. We see a lot of this today, don't we? 
We see a lot of works-based faith. We see a lot of works-based religion. We see a lot of money-making religion. We see a lot of health and wealth gospel. We see a lot of magic potions to help people get to the next level in their spiritual walk. We see a lot of things that are contrary to the scripture, yet it hasn't changed. Yet we see a lot of it here. And as they come to oppose Christ, we see another superstition take place. What do they do? It says here that they came to seek from him a sign from heaven to test him. Why? Jewish superstition believed that demons can also perform miracles on earth. But they couldn't perform miracles in the skies and the heavens. Again, this is Jewish superstition. And they based it off of who? Janus and Jambres, right? The two magicians that opposed Moses. They were able to perform some signs and wonders as well. Yet not to the extent that God could. But we also see that in believing that, they lead people astray. Because the book of Revelation tells us that the false prophets will perform signs and wonders not just on the earth, but in the heavens. Seeking to lead astray even those who are of the faith. So we see that the darkness continues to oppose God and say, If you are God, prove yourself. And yet they overlook the proof that was already before them. You had the voice of God from heaven at Jesus' baptism saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And there were many who heard it. You had the proof of Jesus calming the storm, controlling the storm, the wind and the seas. And they didn't buy into that. You had the miracles of Christ, which were so numerous at this point, that Jesus has said, If you have not believed them, you will believe nothing. They refused to believe and hearken to the message of the gospel. He had performed many signs and wonders. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't refute that. So they prey upon people's superstition. Ah, he's of the devil, which is why he has power here on earth. But let him prove it in the skies. What does Jesus do? He sighs deeply in his spirit. Can you hear it? Can you hear the sigh of Almighty God over the anguish of the foolishness of man? Of the continuing hatred of man to himself? But he doesn't just condemn the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He condemns an entire generation. He says, For why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. They missed the fact that the Messiah had come in the flesh. They missed the fact that they admitted to Herod when Jesus was born that, yep, he was born over here, and that's why these wise men are here, is because they followed the signs. They were laid out in Scripture. You can find it was in Micah chapter 5 that he was to be born in Bethlehem, but don't worry about it. It's really not true. Why do we miss it? And then we miss the fact that there was the weeping and the moaning over the murdered children because of the acts of Herod, which was prophesied. And we continue to miss time and time again the proof that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. But not all missed it. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 2. And it's interesting because this is again another condemnation against the Pharisees. There is one who understood. And he also gave the what? He gave the verbiage to what the actual Pharisees believed. In John chapter 3 and verse 2, this is Nicodemus. This man, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. So they were willing to admit that. And he says this, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And they left it there. And yet Nicodemus, we know, found salvation. Jesus explained to him the, an understanding of new birth and regeneration and baptism by the Spirit. But we know that as a whole, the Pharisees remained unchanged in their unbelief. And Jesus left them in their unbelief. 
But it's interesting. They act a lot like Pharaoh did. Again, we just talked about Janus and Jambres, how they opposed Moses and they opposed God. Well, what did Pharaoh do? God performed signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And each time Pharaoh did what? He hardened his heart. And then it says that he hardened his heart again. And then it gets to a point where God changes the verbiage and it says God hardened his heart even more. There's that point where man can get to when he continues to reject the truth and the light of the gospel where God says, I'm done. And God leaves them in judgment in their unbelief to die in their sin. Romans 1 teaches us this, that God gives them over to their depravity. And we see that in our nation today. Man has gone astray into such foolishness. Why? Because he has been given over in his depravity. But there's still hope. There's hope in the light of the gospel. Because we know that God gave the gospel as light unto men. Even though not all men will see it, there are those who will. And there is hope. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. We're gonna, Matthew's gospel expounds on this confrontation a little bit for us. And I want to look at that. No wonder I'm in can't find it. I was in Matthew 6, not 16. In Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Again, Jesus is saying, you make lousy astronomers already because you think you can tell what's going to happen because of the color of the sky. But you make even worse theologians because you can't discern the times that you're in. You can't discern what is right in front of you. And then he says this, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Jesus said, you will be given the sign of Jonah. Well, what is that? Well, it was in reference to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It was the power of the resurrection of Christ that was the proof of who Jesus was. It was the ultimate proof of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of sin. And even in the greatest sign from heaven... What happened? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Flip over to Matthew 28, if you would, please. We have the response of the Pharisees. Matthew 28, starting in verse 11. This is the response to the greatest sign of heaven that they asked for. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests, all that had happened. That what? The stone was rolled away and Christ rose from the dead. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, what did they do? They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole Him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win Him over and keep you out of trouble." And they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story is widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. So the greatest sign that they asked for was the resurrection of Christ, the sign of Jonah. And it happened. And what did the words of Christ prove? That no matter what sign I give you, you will never believe. Because you are hardened in your unbelief. And they didn't believe. They took the fact and the proof of the resurrection of eyewitnesses and paid them off to lie about it. They paid them off to say, eh, we don't want to believe that rubbish, so here, here's a large sum of money. Forfeit your life, because again, dereliction of duty was required under death penalty by Rome. So these soldiers forfeited their life on an empty promise that, oh, we'll win the governor over for you. They weren't worried about these men. They could care less. They cared about the fact that truth was suppressed. That truth was quieted. Again, the darkness will always 
hate and seek to destroy the light of the truth. And this is what they did. Jesus said, no sign will be given to you because no sign that Jesus could give would bring them to faith and understanding in Christ. It's a harsh judgment. And yet it's a true judgment that man left to his depravity will always deny the existence of God and the glory of Christ. But then Jesus here, at the end of verse 13, gives another great judgment. And it's the judgment of abandonment. It says here that Jesus left them. Leaving them, Jesus got in a boat and embarked again to the other side. Jesus again, this is his last time that he had a conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees in Galilee. This is the last time that he was openly in public in Galilee. Jesus abandoned them to their unbelief. Hell is described as outer darkness. Why? Well, it's very fitting. What are we looking at here? The darkness of the depravity of man that's against the light and the glory of the gospel. It's very fitting that it's outer darkness because it'll be totally depraved man under the judgment of God still denying the glory of God and the glory of Christ. That is outer darkness. That is the absolute epitome of darkness. It is the rejection of Christ and the rejection of His work and the preciousness of the blood of the Savior. That is why it's confirmed as a place of outer darkness. Because they are confirmed in their depravity that they hate the blood of the Lamb of God. So what about temporary darkness? Temporary darkness, that's our second point. Verses 13 to 21, or 14 to 21. And they had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. So here we already start out on a trip, right? And, they're move, and we know that they're going over to the area of Bethsaida. And Bethsaida has already been condemned by the Lord as a town of woe, and we'll get to that. But they also know that it's a desolate area, right? That's where, in the approximate area where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. There's not much there. And disciples, it says here that they realize they've forgotten to bring along bread, and they had only one loaf. They're hungry. So what are they worried about? Why are they worried about bread? They had the creator of the universe in the boat with them, who has already created miraculously tens of thousands of meals from nothing. And they're worried about having one loaf of bread. It again goes back to the weakness of their faith at this point. But it also shows us too that oftentimes we, as believers in Christ, we get waylaid sometimes by the temporary things of this world, do we not? By the physical things of this world. And we neglect the spiritual because we're worried about the physical. This is what's happening with the disciples. They're worrying about the physical. And they're missing the point of the spiritual. They just saw an exchange with Christ and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he was talking about spiritual darkness with them. And he was talking about judgment because of the spiritual depravity of their state. So Jesus here seeks to teach his disciples about this great truth that they can't miss. Right? You miss this and you're missing everything else that comes after. And they're worried about bread. Well, what happens? Verse 15. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. All right. So here we are. Jesus now starts talking about leaven. Okay, we're talking about bread. We forgot it. That's where they went to, right? How do we know that? Oh, it says, verse 16, And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Y'all, we forgot it. And now he's talking about leaven. We're in trouble. There's still a little bit of blindness there, isn't there? Yeah. The disciples, I mean, this is one thing we often forget. The disciples are not at this point indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they are living in the presence of God. And they have his presence and they have his explanations. But they are still learning on their own as men with the instruction of Christ. And as Christ has illumined the truth of who he is to them, as we'll see later on, 
They are still struggling in their flesh as men, as simple men who have also been brainwashed for how many years in the ways of the Pharisees. Right? They're confounded in Judaism because that is how they were raised and that is how they were taught to think. And now they are living a life, but they are pursuing the truth. And that's the difference. The Pharisees rejected the truth and wanted to prove it wrong. The disciples are constantly yearning for the truth of what do I need to understand? Jesus, how can we understand what you are teaching to people? They still have weak faith. They're worried about their physical hunger and forgetting the spiritual hunger that's there. They're looking at the physical side of bread and leaven instead of looking at the spiritual side. How often do we find ourselves doing the same thing? We wrestle in ourselves with spiritual truth oftentimes. But do we wrestle well as to find the truth? Do we seek after sound doctrine? Do we seek after the truth of the word? Do we yearn and hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because we have a promise that we'll be filled and satisfied. And Jesus gives them a rebuke. But I want to look back up at verse 15 really quick. He says he was giving orders to them that inference giving orders in the Greek means an emphatic repeating, right? Jesus, this isn't new. Jesus is continuing to say over and over, look out, be aware. Why? Because oftentimes we're not aware of what's going on around us spiritually, right? We just kind of walk in our little tunnel sometimes and, ooh, that's really bad, so I'm going to definitely stay away from that. But we miss the subtleties. We miss the subtleties of sin. We miss the subtleties of the darkness. And sometimes we forget to address it until all of a sudden it becomes a big problem. And Jesus was continuing to say, be aware. This was a repeated and an ongoing command. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Leaven is what? Yeast, right? We understand what yeast is. A little bit of it will leaven an entire lump of dough. It doesn't take much. But yeast and leaven in the New Testament often was used to illustrate influence. Not just physical yeast, right? We're not talking about Jesus like, watch out for that yeast because you guys might grow, right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about the spiritual influences of what? The religious establishment. The monetary establishment. The Roman government and the worldly establishment. So we have those things, right? And he's trying to teach them that truth. So he's telling them to beware. And Jesus says what? Beware of the fact of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, what was the leaven of the Pharisees? Because we need to understand that, right? Because that warning is no different today than it was then. It just takes on a different flesh, right? So we flesh it out. The leaven of the Pharisees is what? Works-based salvation, number one. Works-based salvation. We find a lot of that around here, right? How many people have run across a false religion of works-based salvation? Yes, they're everywhere. They're rampant. But you also need to take heed and be aware that you also don't accidentally teach works-based salvation. So there is an awareness of the fact of what are the dangers of that. Look at those. Secondly, they had a religion of hypocrisy. They lived a hypocritical life. And Jesus called them out on that. Read Matthew 23 if you want to understand the depth of that. But he called them out as hypocrites because they looked and appeared pious and righteous in one respect, but they lived like devils. They had hearts of stone. Thirdly, they had a religion of doctrinal error. The Pharisees had the Old Testament. The Pharisees were the chosen people of God. And yet they missed the whole point of the doctrine of the Old Testament. That it was to point to Christ. That it was to point the nation of Israel to bring others under the worship of God. That they were to be inclusive of the nations in the sense of bringing them in and showing them how to worship and reverence God. To show the nations who God was. Right? Remember when God told them, do not despise what? The strangers, the foreigners. Why? Because you once were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You once were strangers, and you were treated with hostility and hatred. Don't be like that. Be a people who brings in the foreigner to teach them about me, to teach them about how to worship God rightly. 
This was the whole purpose of the nation of Israel, was to bring the nations to the glory of God and to teach them who God was, to be set apart. But they also had a religion of hatred of people. The Pharisees hated the common person. They wanted nothing to do with them. Stay away, you might make me dirty by touching me. You might make me dirty by relation. Every time they saw Christ with sinners, they're like, ah, look at that. You're definitely of the devil. You, you hang around with sinners. They miss the whole purpose of the gospel. It is the sick who need a doctor. It is not the well. It is those lost in spiritual darkness that need the light. That is the leaven of the Pharisees. What about the leaven of the Sadducees? Pragmatism, Right? Pragmatic people. Rationalism. Materialism. A hatred of people through exploitation of people for material wealth. Again, the priestly line was to be what? Cared for by the abundance of the nation. And yet they used the abundance of the nation to continue to increase their wealth through usury and manipulation. Remember? When Jesus went to the temple, and they said, well, you need to pay a temple tax. And Peter's like, do you going to pay that? And Jesus is like, yeah, go grab a fish and pluck a couple coins out. But he's like, the children don't belong to pay the temple tax. Again, he was showing the fact that they were using the people in their position to gain in wealth and materialism, to gain in status. There are many that preach that gospel today. There are many that preach the gospel of gain. You follow Christ, you'll be rich, you'll have everything you need, you can live your best life now. And yet, just stop and think of the stupidity of that statement. You live your best life now. How many of you have read the, God, or the, the book of Revelation? Yeah, I preached through it too, so you all heard it. How many of us can say that anything that you've seen in this life compares to anything you've seen in the book of Revelation? Again, we follow stupidly the ideas that I can live my best life now, and yet just the small glimpse of heaven, the small glimpse of the glory of God that we will get to see, right? Face to face. How does anything in this world compare to that? How does anything in this life compare to the glories of God's kingdom? How does anything in this life compare to being able to live a life of perfect relation with God? To be able to worship Him without the hindrance of my sin and my flesh. To be able to worship God and obey Him perfectly as He created me to. Be able to get back to the perfection of Eden. And yet without the shame of Eden as well. But to be able to worship God perfectly and serve Him in full gladness and joy in His presence. How does anything in this life compare to that? And yet we so often fall into that folly of, oh, if I just get this, I'll be happy. Things will never make you happy. You can pursue things until you're dead and you will never find happiness if you ask a rich person how much do you need just a little bit more but you never get to that little bit more because when you get that it's a little bit more and a little bit more and yet it never satisfies remember it's fleeting thirdly the leaven of herod the unbridled lust and love of the world the sensuality of the world the sensuality and lust of power the sensuality and lust of depravity, right? Paul explains the fact of those who live in lawlessness and teach others to do the same. And they encourage them, be like me. Live this life of depravity because you will find joy in it. There is freedom in being unchained from the rules and regulations of pious and righteous living. There is freedom in being able not to be chained by the doctrines of the Scripture. 
There is freedom in saying, I don't need God. I am sufficient in myself. And this is the lie that is begins and continues to be perpetuated year after year, generation after generation, age after age. False religion, materialism, and worldly living is what we are to be aware of as the church. It is what Jesus is teaching the disciples. Watch out for false religion and pious living. Unless it's true piety and not hypocrisy. Watch out for materialism and seeking gain off of others. Watch out for the lust and the sensuality of the world. It has no place in the church. It has no place in the house of God and in the life of God's people. Not even one small jot or tittle of it. Are we continuing to stay focused and aware that Christ continues to usher and shout the warning, Be aware. Watch out. Are we heeding that as the church? Because if not, then we're failing in obedience to Christ. We're failing in our obedience to the warnings and the commands of Christ to watch out and to be aware. We need to always be ready in season and out of season. We need to be ready at all times to combat the lie with truth. To be able to push back the darkness with the glorious light of the gospel. Why do we do what we do? You guys have heard me say that a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more, Lord willing. Why do you do what you do? Because it's important. Because it continues to go back to why do we follow Christ? The disciples had a great misunderstanding. And it's interesting because Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Mark told them the reason that he taught in parables was so that while seeing, they may not perceive and see. And while hearing, they may not perceive and understand. And that they may not turn and find salvation. And you know what's interesting is he uses that exact same language here to help the disciples wake up. What does he say? Verse 17. Jesus says to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Think of the heart of our Creator. Yes, is He a little exasperated at the hard-headedness of His people? Yes, He is. Absolutely. But in gentleness and compassion, He continues to help them to see the folly of their way. I'm not talking about your physical hunger. I'm talking about the spiritual reality of life. I'm not worried about your physical hunger because I can provide for it when we get there. You have one loaf. I have unlimited loaves. Right? He goes back to that fact. And when I broke the bread for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? I am the creator. I can satisfy all your needs. You need to look to me, focus on me, and the rest will be given. Again, going back to the whole illustration of the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you worry after these things? Because God knows your needs and will already provide them. Seek and hunger and thirst after righteousness and truth. And the rest will be added. Stop worrying about the physical and the temporary. Worry about the spiritual and the enduring, the eternal. Worry about the things that make for life. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16 and verse 12 gives us the understanding that the disciples got it when Jesus said that. In verse 12 it says, And they came to understanding. And praise God that He brings us there, right? Because there's often times where we don't understand that we're physically and spiritually weak, and yet God gives us through the glory of His truth and through the power of His Spirit understanding. 
And praise God that he can say, have you not understood? And we can say, yes, Lord, we now understand. We get it. Thanks for hitting us over the head. We needed it. It's the glory of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. No father expects his child to know everything. Yes, you guys heard that right. You don't know everything. We don't expect you to know everything, but we expect you to listen and to learn and to grow and to mature. And that's what our relationship with our Heavenly Father is like. As we pursue a relationship with our Father, He's going to endow us with wisdom and understanding and help us to be able to chew on the deep and hard doctrines by the power of His Spirit, as we depend on Him to give us light and understanding. Through the Apostle James, he said, if you lack wisdom, let him ask, because I give liberally. Do you ask for wisdom? Do you ask for understanding? Do you ask for awareness? The response and the drive of the disciples was to learn more truth. The response of the the, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians was to deny the truth and go back and hide in the darkness. The disciples pursued light and they wanted to be shrouded in darkness. There is a comparison between the people of God and the people of the world. And it's stark and it's vast. Where are we at today as the church? Jesus continues to teach the disciples. Even when he rose from the grave, he spent what? 40 days teaching his disciples, tendering their heart for the gospel until his ascension that we see in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. But I want to read a few verses that shows the promise of Christ to continue to help his people to understand and to grow in the grace and the mercy of God's doctrines. In John chapter 14, verse 26 Jesus gives this promise. And this is the night before he was betrayed. Jesus gives this promise. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will send a Helper. John chapter 16, verse 12 through 15. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus knows our frailty, does He not? But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative. Again, that's very reminiscent of Christ, right? I speak only that which I hear from the Father. The Holy Spirit hears and speaks that which He hears from Christ. But He will speak whatever He hears, and He will speak to you, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Philippians 2, or 2 Peter 2, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says that he gives us everything we have need of for life and godliness. Do we believe that? Do we live in that truth? 1 John chapter 2, verse 27 1 John 2, verse 27. And as for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, the Holy Spirit. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. God does not leave us on our own, weak and without His help. And as Elijah read this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, Verse 12 specifically says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know, just as I have also been fully known. We will never come to a complete understanding here. It's guaranteed. But we will learn more and know more as we come face to face with our Redeemer. We have the promise of an eternity of growing in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has not left us alone as orphans. Thirdly, our third point, is we have another illustration. It's amazing that when Jesus teaches a hard point, oftentimes he gives a physical illustration of what he's talking about. And we see that here for us in our text, verses 22 to 26. 
And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. And then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter into the village. Bethsaida was the home of Peter and Andrew, Philip, and possibly Nathaniel. Scriptures tell us that. So we're back in some familiar territory. It was also in the area, the approximate area, the feeding of the 5,000. It's a place of woe and judgment from the Lord. But blindness, we know, in first century Israel was vastly around. There was a lot of blindness in those times. It was widespread. But it was also looked upon as a curse of God for sin. They often looked at blindness as he was blind because he or his parents have sinned and therefore he is under the judgment of God. But you know what's interesting? One thing we see here is people continue to yearn for the touch of the Savior. Just touch this man and make him whole. And Jesus, in his infinite compassion again, he takes this blind man and he leads him out of the village and gives him personal attention. Again, he's using this man as an illustration to his disciples. We have just talked about spiritual blindness. And you've seen the permanent blindness of the Pharisees. And you've understood that you are blind in yourself. And yet as I explain the gospel and as I explain truth, you become less and less blind. They begin to see a little bit less dimly, right? So Jesus takes this man and he does what? spits on his eyes and touches his eyes and says, do you see anything? And it's interesting. Every miracle of Christ has always been immediate and clear and perfect right away. Some false gospel preachers will take this as not every miracle is meant to be complete. It can be partial. But it's not because this man was restored to full eyesight. But it's interesting that he spit on his, on his eyes and he touched his eyes. Again, his spit had no healing power. This, again, is only one of two that is only recorded in the Gospel of Mark for us. Mark's Gospel is the only one that records this. But as he did that, the man said, what? I look about and I see men and they kind of look like trees, meaning his vision wasn't in focus, right? He didn't have quite clear eyesight yet. It goes to illustrate the truth of our life in Christ. As we come into the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, we begin to see dimly things, right? We begin to dimly see truths. And we continue to grow in that. And we come out of our blindness. And then what happens? As Christ goes again and lays his hands upon him again, it says what? He looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's taking them out of the blindness that they have, and he's restoring their vision. What? Restoring the vision of the Spirit. That they can begin to see less dimly the spiritual realities and truths that Christ is teaching. Their, their vision is being restored. That they can see clearly and understand. How do we know that? Well, Lord willing, next week we're going to see that out of this, the outcome is Peter says what? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. Again, they begin to see more clearly who Christ is. And they begin to see clearly their spiritual condition. And then Jesus adds one more judgment. And he told the blind man that had been made whole, he sent him home, but said, do not even enter the village. Why? Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, gives us insight. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, says this. And Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. Because of their unbelief, Jesus was washing his hands of them. He was leaving them in their spiritual blindness. 
So therefore he told this man, this demonstration again was for his disciples to learn truth. And so he told this man, you go home, but don't go through the village. Don't spread what happened to you. Go home. Again, there is that place of spiritual judgment where we will stay permanently blind in our sin because of unbelief. But there are those who God, by his grace and his mercy, calls us out of the darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1. We have the glory of the gospel in the person and work of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, And there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. It is the glory of the person and work of Christ that brings us out of blindness and brings us into the light and the truth of the gospel. And there's only one gospel, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that alone. Take heed, take warning. The enemy is voracious and active. And yet, what did Jesus say? Take heart. Why? Because I have already overcome the world. The promises in Christ are sure, the promises in Christ are great. Rest on those. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you that you have not left us in darkness. We thank you that we are not condemned to the outer darkness of hell. But because of belief and faith in Jesus Christ, and because of the completeness of the atonement of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins, we no longer need to stand in judgment. We no longer sit in the outer darkness but you have transferred us into the beloved kingdom of your Son, which is a kingdom of light and truth and love and mercy and grace and peace. We thank you that because of Jesus we have peace with you, that we are no longer waging war against you. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, may we have hearts that love you to obedience. Not because we are earning our salvation, but because, as you said, if you love me, you will obey me. Father, may we live in great and joyous love as we obey the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.